people into relationship with Jesus Christ. And really how we do that is through worship, just like we are here. We have several different worship venues and worship services uh, that meet throughout the morning. I think we have nine that meet throughout the morning because worship's important. We also value learning in small groups and in, in classes. And we also engage by sharing our gifts and skills and money and all that we have for others. And our hope is that in this series, that for those of you who are members, you'll be reminded of who we are and hopefully inspired to continue to see this church grow in every way. And for those of you who are visiting with us, who are our honored guests this morning, as we say, we hope that this will be invitational to you and that you will see that we not only love the fact that you're here, but we want you here. And we even need you here. But perhaps the most important question that we have for this series is, why become part of this community of faith? Or for those of you who are members, why do you stay part of this community of faith? I want to say this morning, because we need people who are not content to be on the sidelines, but are ready to get in the game and to join us in our radical acceptance that has been part of this church's history for 73 years now. And our welcoming mission of loving all into a relationship with Jesus Christ. And that there are those of you who want to say, count me in. We need people who are wholeheartedly believing that those who come in count. Do you hear it? And we need more and more people who are passionate about you are welcome that we see on every door as you come into this church. And you'll, you'll see more and more about this part of who we are of loving you. So why? And I'd say who does not need a church or a fellowship that's committed to loving you and equipping you to love all and is about this part of our vision that we see ourselves about in all that we do and that is challenging in love that which divides. So we need more members who are off the sidelines and who are saying count me in because I believe others count and I want to be part of this radical acceptance in love. Now this morning our centering passage is going to come from the gospel of Mark, this scene in Jesus' life when he's calling out the uh, disciple become apostle named Levi, whose name is Matthew as we know him, and he's called him from the tax booth into uh, the discipleship of the Lord. So if you've got your Bibles, I want you to turn to Mark the second chapter beginning with the 13th uh, verse. I'd like for all of us to stand for the reading of God's Word out of respect for His Word. And I want us to hear this mission, this clarion call to mission that Jesus has for the church. Beginning with the 13th verse. Jesus went out again beside the sea, and the whole crowd gathered around Him, and He taught them. As He was walking along, He saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, 
sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And Levi got up and he followed him. As he sat at dinner in Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were also sitting with Jesus and his other disciples, for there were many who followed him. And when the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they said to the disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Well, that's a why question. And when Jesus heard this, he said to them, he answered that why question. He said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I have come to call not the righteous, but the sinners. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Now, several years ago, there was a guy named John Burke who came out with a book that was entitled, and I love this title, No Perfect People. And, and the book was so captivating that, uh, that I actually read it. You know, preacher read another preacher's book. And this guy was the pastor at the community, our Gateway Community Church in, in Austin at the time. And one of the opening paragraphs in his book, and I want to read it to you, one of the opening paragraphs said this, question form. What do a Buddhist, a biker couple, a gay rights activist, a transient, a high-tech engineer, a Muslim, a 20-something single mom, a Jew, a couple living together, and an atheist have in common? Do you know? They are the future church in America. Burke continues. I hope painting a picture of what God is doing through His church will help you see how you can experience the invisible Jesus made visible through the body, your local church. But I must warn you, up front, doing church like this is a mess. But it's a beautiful mess. I love that quote. And I believe it. Do you believe it? You know, the church, I think that the church of the present and the growing future is going to be a church that's a bit messier than we've seen church in the past. And it's not far from the messy church that Jesus meant to start. And that was that church that was meant to call not the righteous, but the tax collectors, the Samaritans, the women, the Gentiles, the slaves, and others whose acceptance was questioned. That's who Jesus said, I've come for. So Jesus calls the church today to be about that same work. Jesus calls us as the church to be about those who are struggling with their sin, their disbelief, their addictions, their differences, their prejudices, their sexuality, their physical challenges, their hang-ups, their messy lives. Have I touched you yet? You know, we all have messiness, don't we? And if our church is not for people who I've just described, then I don't even know if I would feel very welcome here. 
How about you? You know, once upon a time, we had a sign out front that said, no perfect people allowed. We called John Burke and asked permission. And then we put it out there right on Northwest Highway, people coming and going. We have never had a sign uh, before or since that has caused more commotion than putting up a sign that said, no perfect people allowed. We had people call and say, I love that sign. We had people call and say, I hate that sign. We had one prominent citizen of Dallas, a uh, billionaire. I won't call his name. He ran for president once. Anyway, he called. <laughs> He's quite a character, by the way. He was a friend of one of our associates, and he called. And he said, well, it's too bad that I can't come to church anymore at Lover's Lane. He said, why not? He said, well, you had a sign up there that said no perfect people allowed. <laughs> I love that. But, but you know, what that sign was about was really what this church has been about from the very beginning. And you need to know that. We need to know that 73 years ago when this church was born, shortly thereafter, this church started forming an identity much like a little child does. Those important first few years, that, 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 church, that, that child's identity, just like a church's identity, has been formed and, and and this is the case with Lover's Lane, into a radical, accepting church. Now, in 1998, I climbed into the pulpit over there in the sanctuary, and I felt like I was standing on the shoulders of only three pastors who had preceded me. Doctors Tom Shipp had been here for 31 years. He died at the age of 58. He never preached on this campus in any other room but here. This was the sanctuary. When he died, the sanctuary still was coming out of the ground. He died in a finance committee meeting. Lord, please don't take me in a finance committee meeting. Any, anywhere but there. But Tom made a difference here. I want to honor him today. And he was followed by Dr. Don Benton, who was here for 18 years. So for nearly 50 years, this Methodist church had two full-time pastors. And then Dr. Bill Bryan, I followed him. Bill wasn't here for a, a long time, but he was here for an important time. And he made a big difference here in opening our eyes to our history and to our future. Now, I didn't know much about Lover's Lane when I was appointed the pastor. I remember the bishop who called me into his office said, because I was in another conference, he said, do you know anything about Lover's Lane? I said, well, you know, the only thing I know is that there's a lot of singles and a lot of drunks. Really? Because in the 80s and 90s, that's, if you knew Lover's Lane, you knew there's a big church. And what they're really famous for is filling up this room, Asbury Hall, with singles. It was the hottest singles ministry in Dallas. And also that, that they, for the, from the very beginning, had a ministry to alcoholics. And that's what they, we were known for. So today I want to talk in part about two early stories that I think formed this church in ways that will continue to form this church into the future. And they both come out of the ministry of Tom Shipp, pastor for 31 years here. 
And, and the first story I want to tell you because it marked his ministry, even though he wasn't the pastor here when it happened, he was an associate pastor at Highland Park United Methodist Church. He, he was from Missouri by way of Arkansas. He came here with his wife, Dee, started seminary at SMU, and he was on the staff at Highland Park when one day the phone rang and it changed his life. The phone call came in for a pastor, and there was no other pastor around who was more seasoned than Tom. They were all at lunch, but Tom was there, and Tom got the call. And it was a brother who said, I have a brother, I've received a phone call from him, and he is drunk somewhere in a junkyard in Dallas. And I need to know, can you find him for me? Now, we need to realize that you know, 75 years ago, Dallas wasn't as big, there wasn't as many junkyards, and so that wasn't probably as daunting a task as it sounds like it was today. Tom said, yeah, I'll find him, and he did. And he found this man in a, in, in, in a, in a condition, and I, I want to read some of the words that Tom said about this situation from Tom's own pen. He said, I found him lying on the back seat of a battered Ford. His face showed almost green through a two-week-old stubble beard. His suit was rumpled and it was filthy. And at his feet were a dozen empty bottles. The stench was unbearable. And I had never seen such a sick man in my entire life. I'd never dealt with a drunk. I'd never been intoxicated myself. And now, suddenly, this alcoholic was my responsibility. He was a man who once had been a respected school principal in Texas. But when he was in his mid-30s, he'd been persuaded to take a drink at a Board of Education meeting. And after that, it was all downhill for Bob. He drank so much that he finally deserted his family and he disappeared from friends and relatives for a full year. Meanwhile, his wife had divorced him. And what, was going, what I was going to do to bring this man to healing, I did not know. I really believed, as I drove back to the church, that someone would be able to cure him. After I phoned Bob's brother to tell him I had Bob safe with me, I began making calls to other ministers. I'm sorry, I just don't know... How to handle alcoholics, they told me. Uh, just do what you can until his brother gets there. I called two doctors that I knew in the congregation. There's really very little that you can do to help someone who drinks like that. Both of them said. I wished I knew a cure, but I don't. Finally, I called another doctor and asked him to enter Bob in the hospital. He said, I can't do that. He said, uh, hospitals don't accept people just because they're drunk. You'll have to take him to the drunk tank down at the county jail. Tom said, I began to realize the hopelessness that alcoholics and their families then faced. Neither ministers nor doctors had any better ideas about how to rehabilitate an alcoholic than I did a first-year theological seminary student. There seemed to be nothing to do but to take Bob home with me until his brother arrived. And at, at that tiny little apartment in which my wife and I lived, 
I put Bob in the only bed we had in the house. Whoa. And it wouldn't be long until his brother comes, I told my wife, D. It's not going to be long, honey. And then Tom said, I got another call. And it was from Bob's brother. Bob's brother was calling from the hospital. Bob's brother said that he just had an emergency appendectomy and it would be a few days before he could get there. Tom said by the second night, Bob had begun to see little men crawling around the room. I just sat there and held his hand all night. Turn on more lights, more lights. He kept screaming. And we managed to struggle through three hectic days. Finally, Bob was sober. And in those days, I was naive enough to believe that to cure alcoholism, all you had to do was to dry up a drunk once and for all. Now, friends, that's messy. But something happened to Tom Ship and his wife Dee in that experience that literally changed his life and changed his ministry forever, wherever he would be. And a year later, he was here. And guess what? He brought that passion for alcoholics with him, and he also brought alcoholics. That was messy. You know, there is no way to fully estimate the impact of this experience on Tom and on Lover's Lane and on Dallas and literally on the world. Tom soon was instrumental in establishing AA and bringing AA to Dallas for the first time. He'd met a woman in Houston who was coming to pick up upper rooms at Highland Park United Methodist Church And he asked what the upper rooms were being used for. And she said, well, we've got an AA meeting. She explained what an AA meeting was. She said, we use these in our AA meeting. And that little seed grew when Tom got here into becoming an AA program in this city. And Bob was one of the first participants. In 1960, Tom Shipp, the pastor of Lover's Lane, delivered the very um, uh, most important keynote address to Alcoholics International. He was introduced by Bill Wilson, who founded AA. And Bill Wilson introduced Tom for 12 minutes. He went on and on and on about Tom. And what he was mainly saying was, this is so unusual to have a pastor who has a passion for people who are dealing with alcoholism and a church that he's leading that at that time was the fourth largest church in Methodism who has a passion for the alcoholic. So in the 1940s, when Tom became pastor here and some of his drunk friends followed him here, he became aware and made the congregation aware that that alcoholism was more than just sin. Because you see, in that day, it was a behavior. It was sin. And, and, And alcoholics were sinners. And the church was not really for sinners. It was for good people like you. Because good people know we're imperfect. We're messy. We got stuff we don't even want to talk about. But we find here acceptance. 
it feels good. And it feels good to pass that acceptance on to others. You know, one of the first families that left the church, left the church and told Tom, said, you know, we, we just don't think we can be here if there are going to be alcoholics here because we don't want to be part of the first alcoholic church of Dallas. Whoa, wouldn't that have been a great name? Been greater than Lover's Lane. First alcoholic church of Dallas. You know, people would flock here, wouldn't they? Whoa, first alcoholic church of Dallas. Here we are. And then Tom kind of drew a line in the sand. And he said, look, these people need us. And if we're not here for people who need us, then why are we here? And I don't know if you need me to be your pastor if we're not for people who need us. Well, that family left and families started coming. They outgrew the little house. They outgrew uh, Bradford School. They, they built their first church a year later. It was a little chapel still there, Wallace Chapel on Lover's Lane. Church was growing, church was growing, building and growing, building and growing because it was doing things that, that other churches weren't doing. It was a little weird. Listen, we need to own the fact we're just a little weird. Our, our story's just a little weird. Tom used to preach, we need to be up a tree and out on a limb. And that's what he, he preached to a congregation that followed him in that we're going to be different. We're going to try to be like Jesus said we should be. With a radical acceptance. See he had a delayed vision. He didn't have any clue that one day. That this passion that he had for an alcoholic. That then became for alcoholics. Would one day grow into a ministry. That today we call 12 step ministry. And 3,700 people a month. Nearly a thousand people a week. Go through the doors of the CSD. Dealing with some form of recovery from an addiction. And it goes on so naturally because it's part of our culture. We have an addicted world. And this church stands for recovery, and for love in the midst of those problems. You know, people were welcomed here, not only those who were struggling with behavior issues like, like alcoholism, but, but those who were oriented, in other words, created by God, who were seen as different than the larger congregation, they too were welcome. Next week, you're going to hear a story about a woman named Miss Bernice Jones. And Miss Bernice Jones was oriented, she was created by God as an African-American person. In 1961, she walked down the aisle of Lover's Lane and joined the church. 1961. And 20 families left the church. And Tom drew a line in the sand again. And he said, we're not going to vote on who becomes a member here. Who am I to turn somebody away who wants and needs Jesus? All are welcome here, he said. And that year, even though 20 families left the church, 587 people joined the church. He said, count me in. I want to be a part of a church like that. Bishop Martin said about Lover's Lane that this was the first church to integrate in receiving Mrs. Bernice Jones. But Mrs. Bernice Jones couldn't stay. She wrote Tom a letter and she loved the congregation. She said, and I love you, Pastor, and I thank you for bringing me to Christ. But I'm becoming a distraction to the mission and I have to leave. 
She withdrew her membership. Now, who would think that fast forward 50 plus years later that on a given Sunday you'll see 300 people from 400 different African or 14 different African nations who find this place as their church home thanks be to God and an African American can walk down the aisle and be embraced by everyone well nearly everyone we're not perfect yet we're working on the others I want to tell one more story in closing because I think this is the most significant story in our history. You've heard it before, perhaps. I don't want you to ever forget it. I said Tom was messy. He was messy. He was, he was raised an orphan. When he was four years old, his mother died. His father worked for the, for the railroad, and there were three other siblings in the family and there was a grandmother in the picture, and Grandmother Lizzie, she, she raised these kids until she died. And when she died, the family was in a mess. Tom's father literally had to farm them out to farming families who would raise them. And Tom and his brother Bill uh, went to live in different farm families, farming families, and, and Tom said that the family he first lived with, he said, the very first night I went and I, after my chores, I washed my hands at the well and I came into the house. He said, when I came into the house, uh, there was the dinner table spread there and there were four people sitting at the table and there was not another seat. And the father of the family said to me, boy, you don't eat with the family. When we get through with our food, we will bring you your food and you'll eat on the porch um, at the table and when you get through with your supper your bed is in the barn 15 year old boy ate by himself and slept in the barn and after a year and a half he told his dad you know dad I, I, I need a change and so his dad talked to another farming family Mr. Les Kuhn a German farmer in the Southern Missouri, little town of Prairie Home. Tom said the first night he did his chores, he washed at the well out back. He came into the house. He said, there was a place for me at the table. And I was welcome to join the family there. And he said, and, and I had a, a bed in the house. And he said that next week they took me um, shopping and, and, and they bought me the very first new pair of shoes I'd ever worn in my life. He was 16. And and they bought me a new set of clothes. I'd never worn new clothes in all of my life. But he said the most important thing is they, they invited me to go to church. And I was so honored to join them in church that Sunday. And it was a communion Sunday, he said. And after the preacher had preached, this little, little church had a, a pulpit in the center and a table right there. And... There was an altar rail that reached around that table. And he said, I watched as people came up and they knelt and they held up their hand and they received the little piece of cracker and the little juice cup. And, and he said, when my family came up, they invited me up there with them. And, and I knelt down right beside Mr. Coon. He was to my right. And to my left was the man I used to work with. He knelt down beside me. 
And he said when the pastor was making his way around, and he, he said, I, I reached up to receive Holy Communion, and, and the man on my left grabbed my hand. And he wouldn't let go. He said, Mr. Coon said in a voice that was pretty loud, he said, it's not your table. But he still wouldn't let me go. And then he said it a little bit louder, this time with a face that was beat red. It's not your table. He still wouldn't let me go. And then Mr. Coon said, nearly in a shout, it's not your table. And the man let me go. And I received communion for the first time. And then Tom got involved with the youth group. He said it was said about him that there was never a play that Tom wasn't right in the middle of. They couldn't go to a sub-district meeting that Tom wasn't leading the crowd going with them. He was there every time the doors were open. Tom had found a place where he belonged. And you know what I believe? I believe from that point on, especially when he went into ministry, and especially when he became the pastor of Lover's Lane, ringing in his ears with those words, It's not your table, Tom. It's the Lord's table. Don't ever think it's your table. It's the Lord's table. And, 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 and at this table, all are welcome. I think when he picked up Bob and that, that green Ford. And when he spent those three days with him and when the Lord was dealing with him, he, 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 was, he was hearing ringing in his ears, it's not your table, it's Bob's too. Bob's welcome. When Miss Bernice... Jones said she wanted to join the church because Tom had led her to Christ when she was in the hospital. I think he heard in, in, in his, his, his ears, ringing in his ears, I'm not going to say she can't join. It's not my table. It's the Lord's table. And people came to this church from the most messy situations you could ever imagine and they flocked. Because of a radical acceptance. When we see people who have spent time in prison, we hear that ringing in our ears, don't we? It's not our table. It's the Lord's table. They're welcome. When people from other countries come here, many of them refugees, do we hear... They're not welcome here. Or, or ringing in our ears, do we hear? It's, it's the Lord's table. They're welcome. When people come here from different walks of life and different orientations, and they come here dealing with their stuff, let's hear it's not your table. It's the Lord's table. It's a table, it's not only for straight people, it's a table for all people. It's a table not only for families, it's a table for singles. It's a table for not only adults, it's a table for children. It's a table not only for folk who, who are, are, are Caucasian or Anglo, it's a table for all people of all hues. 
What's ringing in your ear? We need people to step up off the sidelines into the game. We need to build a momentum like never before of people who are challenging in love that which divides. We need to own who Jesus called us to be. A church for the tax collector and the Samaritan and the Gentile and the woman and the slave and anybody else whose acceptance is questioned. And how that relates today. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this church and for bringing us here, bringing us together. We thank you for those like Tom and like Don and like Bill who've pastored in the past and for their leadership. We thank you for the lay people who have meant so much to this church, who who have embraced this kind of call and have multiplied it by tens and hundreds, expressing that call to a world in need. Lord God, move among us. Move in the hearts of those who call themselves members of Lover's Lane. That they can get excited about who you've called us to be and can share that excitement and invitation to others to come. Lord, for those who are thinking about what it might mean to be here as a member, Help them realize how important it is to say, count me in. In a church that knows others who come in, count. And Lord, bless us together as we aspire to be like your Son, our Lord, our Savior, Jesus. Loving all people into relationship with Him. Amen.